So I have idea, put recovery middleware in the beginning and the end. Yeah, yeah, that sounds good to me. <laughs> not too much. <laughs> and maybe put, yeah, it so, the, put it in the yeah. middle as well. Why not? The more, the better. <laughs> <laughs> I like your... Uh, yeah, exactly. Wrap all the middlewares with extra middleware of recovery. <laughs> no, but it's actually... This is the discussions and the problems you, you have when dealing with middlewares. It's not always pretty. Hello, everybody, in our first episode of the Optimizing uh, All The Things podcast. Um, we are trying something new. I'm Bartek Wodka. And I'm Ivan Valkov. Yeah, and we are together, um, yeah, starting something new around uh, engineering, maybe soft skills, maybe, you know, improvements to anything that we do in our work and sometimes life. Um, we love optimizing and it's not necessarily, you know, performance optimizations all the way. Sometimes we are optimizing processes, communications, maybe readability, uh, but we are still software engineers. So um, we'll discuss um, variety of things. Um, but before we jump into it, we have a section about some news. So. Okay, what's hot? What's what's happening uh, last week, Ivan? Okay, uh, I think there are a lot of things happening in the tech world right now, but especially around uh, optimizations, there are some uh, interesting uh, acquisitions that have happened uh, in the past week. Uh, I don't know if you know, Grafana bought uh, Pyroscope um, recently, and uh, I hear that you already know a bit about Pyroscope. So can you give me a quick uh, overview of what they do and uh, why is this like an interesting news in the world of uh, optimizations? Yeah, totally. So I never personally use Pyroscope, but um, I use Polar Signals, which has really similar product. So essentially, um, it's a continuous profiling solution. So um, what's new about that is that because profiling happened to be uh, since forever, um, and it essentially you know measures uh, you know resource usage or timings in uh, you know certain portions of your code, um, and you can kind of like you know export this from your binary to see what's your bottleneck, right? Where um, your program spends the most time or where it actually consumes the most memory, where, when, where it allocated the most memory. Um, but these days with, you know, like capabilities of storing a lot of, you know, information over time, um, you know, we came up for like the, some people came up with idea to store this data continuously um, over time. So, you know, those solutions gather profiles, you know, every 15 seconds, every 13 seconds maybe, uh, and store it for later use. So you can kind of derive metrics from it and, and kind of, you know, uh, do wild things with comparing profiles or even subtracting or merging profiles. It's pretty epic. Um, so uh, Pyroscope is doing exactly that. They have, uh, I think, some shiny UI for this. They have agent. They have some server side. Um, and what's special about this is that there are, there are actually a um, small number of companies that only do continuous profiling and specifically focus on that. Uh, for example, Polar Signals, for example, um, Pyroscope. And, you know, with those kind of cool companies, cool startups, you know, big vendors or bigger vendors like, you know, Google, AWS, Datadog, and recently Grafana as well, like they try to, you know, be part of this game and have continuous profiling solutions. So what we say is essentially one of the players, Grafana, uh, trying to enhance their, their solution with uh, with expertise from Pyroscope team. And they already have like cool um, starting, let's say, product, which is called Flare, Grafana Flare, uh, which is written in Go and, uh, and essentially uh, scraping uh, profiles from different applications, for example, for, from Golang applications, for, from, but, you know, from Java or any other language as well. Very popular in, you know, Kubernetes and backend, backend specific world. Um, so it's interesting how they merge those two solutions and, and definitely they will benefit from the uh, expertise. Yeah, yeah. For me, what's uh, most interesting with uh, continuous prof profiling is the uh, no instrumentation phase, right? The fact that I don't have to write a single line of code and I can uh, start seeing uh, profile information is like just amazing. And uh, when we have this kind of offering in uh, one of the big players like Grafana, this means that yeah, a lot of uh, existing customers uh, can potentially start using uh, continuous profiling. So exciting, exciting things. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, I wish it was more 
popular in other languages than Go, because especially in Go, at least in our expertise, you know, profiling is built into language. So you indeed doesn't, I mean, you still have some instrumentation. It's not like uh, automatic yet. Um, I mean, it's a few lines of code, so it's literally automatic. Uh, but, you know, there are, of course, new solutions like eBPF or, you know, others that, that emerge that makes this literally no code solution. Um, and especially for Java, the things are also kind of like automatic. So, um, yeah, there's lots of potential and we'll discuss in this in this episode as well a little bit of that uh, about about this kind of instrumentation layer. So yeah, cool stuff. Congratulations to the team. Awesome, awesome. Uh, what what else has happened in the tech world recently? Yeah, totally. So one thing that uh, maybe is Golang specific, but uh, I want to touch it as a, as a kind of general thing to the to the you know how language can grow and progress because Golang has accepted a new logger. And for those who are not familiar with Golang. Um, you have or like any language has loggers, right? So kind of like some object, some structure, some utility that allows you to log maybe on you know standard error, standard um, output, uh, maybe send it to some provider, maybe you know do some level logging so you have debug warning, whatever errors. Um, it's it actually kind of easy easy code. I think I wrote like seven different logging layers in my life already, but. Um, Funny, funny fact, like Golang has really limited logger, like very, I would say, I didn't like that. I, I, in fact, in my book, I was kind of uh, discouraging from using Golang logger, standard logger, right? There are better solutions. Uh, so I don't know exactly how, how, how this is in other languages. I don't remember. Uh, is is this also the case that standard logging solution is abandoned essentially? Um, however, the thing is, like now this is gonna change with the new S slog, or I don't know how to pronounce it, pronounces slog, I guess. Um, it's already available in the code base in an experimental kind of package, but it will be available in a normal standard package. And I'm super hyped because it actually makes sense. It actually, the proposal was scarily, I don't sad to me, but at the end, I think the community shape it in the way that uh, it's it's enormous win. Uh, so I'm super yeah. excited. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And right. Exactly, exactly. And I think what's what's interesting is that the, the pain of structural log is that you have to program it in the structure. So mm. you can and and you know, log lines usually are used by humans, so does the need the structure. But if used by machines, like for example Elasticsearch or OpenSearch, you know, they 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 like it's amazingly easier to or like cheaper to process them with the structure, but then the structure has to be added, like the schema has to be added on top first. Um, and uh, it's super hard to kind of get the schema, get the structure afterwards when there is no kind of like format and you have to parse into, parse some, yeah, like spaces or like, you know, sentences or like use AI nowadays, I guess. But uh, so, so using structure, Logging, which is also not too typed, not too kind of like cumbersome to use, yet offers this kind of like uh, machine um, computation possibilities. It's super uh, difficult to do from API standpoint. So Slog has pretty nice, uh, like essentially you have a function and it's really similar to GoKit logger, which is my preferred uh, um, logger. I think yours as well, even or not? Uh, ah, I prefer Zap. Know. I prefer Zap. Zap. Okay, good. So, so the GoKit allows to, or like actually wants you to uh, provide pairs of values, which were, well, pair of arguments. So you, you can either provide two arguments or four arguments to this function of log mm -hmm. or whatever, like a multiple, a multiply of two, uh, which means there are pairs, like given values. And this is better than having like weird, you know, structure of like yep. hey value and key whatever so it's not so trivial to do uh, so so yeah it's good it's good good movement 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. definitely. However, yeah, I, I think I would love to have some uh, yeah survey on other languages and like how how much other loggers are used uh, and because like Golang is a standard library uh, in Golang are very you know po popular. Hey, you have amazing language with standard libraries and here the basic utility is totally broken. Uh, so now. Yeah, it's gonna change hopefully. Yeah, I think the first time that comes to mind when I hear about, uh, like a logging library is uh, log4j, but it comes to mind for oh, no. <laughs> different yeah, reasons. Exactly. So, <laughs> no, but, but the thing is, you have to do it properly, right? So yep. don't th those kind of vulnerabilities don't uh, don't chime in. So having a proper standard library that is well maintained because it's kind of like in the language is is a win for everybody, right? And not using some GoKit logger where I don't know if this maintainer is. is like the probably different set of maintainers and so on and yep. so on or yeah so so it's a win all right what else definitely uh so yeah there, there has been so much hype recently about uh ai ai is everywhere like you have a lot of uh models that are generating images like uh, mid journey or like a bunch of others and uh obviously you have um, all of the gpt based uh, large language models um and one of the pioneers, I guess, in this space is uh, OpenAI, and like we can talk for ages about uh, how ChatGPT or like GPT-4 can, uh, you know, change um, software development or like improve your life <laughs> or take exactly. your job. Exactly, exactly. But the interesting part was that when I was browsing uh, like the news uh, over over the weekend, uh, I found out this article from uh, like two years ago, from uh, 2021 that uh, basically described how OpenAI is using 7,500 nodes Kubernetes clusters, which is kind of crazy. Like, it's very difficult for me to imagine this kind of scale. I, we, like, both of us, we have been working with uh, Kubernetes for ages, but I personally haven't seen this, like a cluster this size. I don't know if you have, but uh, yeah, it definitely seems crazy. And there are a lot of kind of... Uh, very hard technical problems that uh, need to be solved for these kind of uh, large language models and in general like AI to be both trained and then um, uh, served. So yeah, yeah, quite interesting stuff. Yeah, so it's crazy, right? Um, I think, I mean, there are two things which are super interesting. One thing is that AI that is so quickly responding to your, um, your prompts, you know, it costs a lot, right? Of course, when you are responding to prompts, that's already like um, a model that was already kind of generated and done. But to improve it, to kind of work on it, it, it takes enormous computation power. So uh, we are getting into this kind of Bitcoin issue almost, right? Like with like energy use or whatever. But, uh, but the scale bit of Kubernetes, um, you know, I think... When we discuss like some kind of API or changes in Kubernetes or or kind of etcd, for example, I think etcd being is being replaced, which is kind of like an key value store, um, durable store um, that that Kubernetes is using to advertise things and have uh, you know this uh, strong consistency. You know, all those things have limitation, and I I think that there were some kind of like. Oh my God, I don't want to kind of mess with numbers, but I heard about like kind of paths towards 10,000 nodes, right? So it's extremely, extremely, you know, high number that not many user actually achieves, right? For example, Red Hat, uh, which is kind of have amazing solutions for Kubernetes, you know, the, the kind of like cloud version, I can see from their documentation is only 100 nodes, right? So mm -hmm, taking mm -hmm. this to 10,000 is possible probably with with maybe some distributions, but you are pushing this to, to, to like enormous limits. So they did a good job. Um, I wonder, yeah, I wonder, do they need to use Kubernetes for <laughs> this, right? Like, like at the end, it's very like, uh, what I'm saying, it's not multi-tenant workload. It's not, it's very like homogenic workload. I want to, you, you know, you can write orchestration system, you know, for that uh, relatively easy. You don't need this multi-purpose, generic purpose Kubernetes, you know, um, thing that has security and whatever to, to, to yeah. So I'm, I'm super impressed they choose Kubernetes and they kind of like stick to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, definitely, it's interesting. And this has been two years ago, so who knows what they're doing uh, today? Uh, maybe they oh, already yeah. they create their own communities, <laughs> you know, distribution or something. All right. So last news for today. Um, 
There are so many uses, but we got so into it. Uh, let us know if you like it or not. So we have some news from Docker, some sad news even. What is it? Yes, yeah. So Docker uh, recently uh, kind of uh, announced that uh, they will start uh, deleting some uh, repos containing open source images. Uh, and this uh, was like a big uh, controversy. A lot of people, um, for obvious reasons, were kind of uh, complaining. Uh, uh, Docker basically has been the um, main place where open source projects are pushing their Im images. So it is easy to see why a lot of people are complaining about that. And since their original announcement, they had a follow-up where they kind of apologized for, I guess, poorly the poor execution of the first announcement. And now they're saying that they're going to kind of slow down the deletion of of these open source open source repos. But I don't think they're so deleted, by the way. I think they are just inability to push anymore. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, at yeah. least that, that's the latest statement, which is kind of the same at the end, almost, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's interesting because like, uh, it kind of gives uh, opportunity to other players in this market to uh, kind of start promoting their services. And there has been some uh, blog posts by uh, GitLab, for example, as advertising mm -hmm. uh, like ways to migrate to, uh, to their services. But that's a quite interesting kind of uh, topic because in the future, we must have some solution for open source repos, uh, for open source projects to um, kind of push their uh, images. And uh, yeah, it's interesting what this will be. Yeah, so maybe just for you to also have some actionable thing from it, if you are using Dogger Hub, like um, if you are hosting any organizations, you have to check if you are affected, essentially if you are on free tier, and you have to then ask them to get into a sponsored free tier uh, that you know they are evaluating. You have to have like fully open source solution, which is not commercialized and so on and so on. So it's harder, but you have to do it. Otherwise, you cannot push and your open source project will essentially stop pushing images and people might be upset. So just check it out. Make sure you're not affected or <clears throat> move to other uh, solution. Like Quay is something we used in our repositories, like in Prometheus and Thanos, but we use Docker Hub as well. So we applied for this sponsored tier, right? Uh, but they want to kind of like chat about like the free aspect. Like, is it really, of course, like market is getting down and, and you know, there are laid-offs and, and um, all those things. I wonder, you know, how much we can trust free solutions essentially, right? <laughs> like Docker Harp, there are no adverts. And you can just use it, and it's the default solution. When you have Docker, you know Docker pull image, it's literally first checking the Docker mm. Hub, and then you know checking other stuff. Uh, so of course, it's suspicious. You know they they kind of like you know still have it. So it's kind of inevitable. So does it change your maybe feeling and 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 towards using free um, vendors, free I don't know services? Yeah, yeah. I I think uh, having a free model, uh, especially for a like technology like Docker, uh, is a great way to get kind of engineers into the platform, right? And I, I'm sure like I'm sure they're not doing it from like the good of their heart. I think there is a very good uh, kind I of strategy. Maybe. <laughs> but, could be, but, could be, but, but, but but there is a very good uh, kind of acquisition channel for uh, customers, because uh, if you're using it for your open source project, then you join a company and the company doesn't have, uh, it's not using Docker yet, it's not using containers. When they start using containers, what will they use? So this kind of like uh, uh, freemium model is uh, really popular with other dev tools as well. Uh, where uh, engineers uh, kind of get the free tier and when they change companies or when their company is evaluating a solution like that, they can promote it. Yeah, totally. And open source is a little bit like that as well. Like it's a, it's a freemium model in the sense where, uh, you know, y you could have the same goals, but the problem with services is that you pay a lot <laughs> to kind of like have the whole world pulling images from you and oh, pushing. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And, and like, if you are not getting enough customers of it, and unfortunately Docker is not having amazing enterprise solution. I don't know what they sell even honestly, personally. So 
it's 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 a poor unfortunately choice so so yeah i i mean i i hope for the best for them maybe they will find solution to um to 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 get some cool cool product that people will buy more um and i'm not mad of the decision um yeah as long as there are free alternatives i could use (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah all right all right let's go let's go to the main part um we could, we could actually finish this and it would be fun still to, to, to talk, but <laughs> we have prepared one topic more for you. Um, and we wanted to talk about middlewares. Okay, Bartek, why do you want to talk about middlewares? Um, and why are you even qualified to talk about middlewares? Oh, I don't know why I'm qualified, but I know why I want to talk about that. There are two reasons, actually. Uh, so thanks for the question. Um, one reason is that I'm, I'm procrastinating on updating the newest version of Glow gRPC middleware library, which is open source. Um, and gRPC, you know, in the gRPC world, is like another, you know, communication framework um, based on the protobuf and uh, HTTP2. Um, so, you know, many, many different languages are using it. And I just happen to maintain open source library for middlewares for gRPC for Go. And it's so old code and we wanted to kind of like improve it and uh, create a version two. And we started like two years ago, didn't finish yet. So I have a big PR uh, reviewed by Johan, who, who did amazing work uh, checking this code and we will just about release. So I was like, yeah, this is something that is relevant second idea is that i look you look i looked for the issues like there are still 100 issues there and i, I kind of closed some of it i was discussing there was so much hype in middlewares like everybody was customizing it everybody was using that to you know we'll discuss what middleware is at the end but you know everybody was using it and now the hype is a little bit gone or is it right so i want to kind of like discuss why maybe there is no hype why it's still useful or you know where the hype go like what what are the alternatives and it kind of spins up bigger questions right yeah yeah so uh, maybe let's start from uh, the beginning what are middlewares like uh, there are many uh, i guess uh, different definitions out there so let, let's set some context about uh, what we're going to talk today can you give like a two lines explanation of middlewares Totally. So middleware, uh, there are so many different, I mean, there's no one definition of it. Like my definition is that it's a glue, right? It allows you to perform some stuff, um, additional functionality that is between uh, maybe some some API and some handling code. So imagine you have to do some, you know, uh, do some handling. You, you want to do some, I don't know, like whatever function, let's call it do. And you want to do something before that function and that fun- functionality is shared across maybe different functions or different things. So you put a layer and that is invoked that looks like a do, but actually do something before do, and that does it all the time, right? So this kind of layering approach is something I, I I'm, what what to me is middleware, and that's kind of like glue uh, that is invisible for the user, mm-hmm. but maybe it's explicit enough in the explicit enough in the configuration uh, earlier on, but it's applied in consistent way to to all the functionality you have, and it's very very popular in communication because every time you'd make HTTP for example, to other service, to other API or gRPC call, you need to do certain things. For example, authorization. Maybe you want to add a metric uh, or, or increment a metric, or you want to add a trace, or maybe well, m- m- multiple other things, right? So all those things are very the same boilerplate thing, things, yep. and um, middleware is great for that. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Maybe one way to understand uh, middleware is like if you imagine that you don't have a middleware then you will have to copy and paste the same functionality in all of your endpoints. All of your endpoints will have to do the same authentication logic. Uh, and basically, the middleware, middleware pattern allows you to kind of abstract this away and uh, apply it across all of your kind of, uh, communication channels. Yeah. So, even is there any real-life analogy? <laughs> I was I thinking was, about that. Yeah. yeah, I was also thinking about that. And I think uh, it's interesting. I, I, maybe my uh, analogy uh-huh. isn't really great, but I was thinking about onions, right? I, uh, okay. I actually really like uh, 
the movie Shrek, right? And yeah. they, they give a, a good uh, analogy about onions there. But uh, in the context of middlewares, um, you kind of uh, have the core, right? Which is the core of the onion. And on top of it, it ha- you have layers and layers and layers. Mm-hmm. And basically, why it's actually relevant to middlewares is because in order, like let's say your core is your actual business logic, like your handler uh, in your HTTP server or your gRPC server. And everything before it uh, in the onion is like your uh, middlewares that kind of handle the input of the request. But the important part with middlewares is that you can modify not only the input, right? You can modify the output as well, right? So if you try to get like a slice of the onion, you actually Mm go uh, through all of the modifications uh, from uh, your uh, input. And then once you handle uh, in your main handler, you can have other kind of modifications happening uh, by these same middlewares. And this was actually helping me uh, kind of uh, think about the order of steps mm-hmm. when you're ordering middlewares, like especially when they are wrapped, like what executes when. But this yeah, is w- deep, w- man. This <laughs> is deep. My analogy is weird as well, uh, but the only analogy I came with is that let's imagine you have a kid because my daughter was just born, so it's very relevant. Maybe, okay, <laughs> kind of relevant. So imagine you have like an older kid and you want to give him a medicine, right? Yep. And, you know, let's say this kid loves sandwiches. So, you know, the best way to do this is to add middleware, <laughs> right? So you have a sandwich and you put like a pill or whatever, medicine. <laughs> on top so how it looks like is that you know the core functionality the, the you know the piece piece of um, stuff in your sandwich is exactly the same it gives you the same protein it's exactly the same it, it, this is the the, the 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 main thing why you eat the sandwich and then the outside of the sandwich is exactly looking like a sandwich so you know it, this peel is hidden there so this is the middleware and yeah, what do you think Okay, interesting, interesting. <laughs> I hope you don't give uh, medicine like that uh, to your daughter, but... Uh... <laughs> Why not? Like, I did with the, the, the cat. Or serious note, um, middlewares are there. Um, and you mentioned already cool behavior. Um, usually we do more, of bo- more pieces of boilerplate than one. So, for example, we and, and let's stick to the uh, communication channels. Like, for example, we made the REST endpoints, HTTP, um, you know, endpoint, and we have a server and there is a handling code. For example, it's responding to query with some database response. And, um, you know, this is where the middleware shines because for every handler, for every different, you know, methods, um, maybe every different, you know, get, post, all those kind of types of HTTP requests, we we execute the same functionality, the same middleware. For example, we check the authorization. Maybe we validate the input. Maybe we increment the metric, how many requests we have in Prometheus, for example. <clears throat> Maybe we're adding traces. So all we already have like five different layers and the, the cool stuff about middlewares, I mean, the stuff that we learn to do in, in kind of like popular languages is to chain middlewares, right? Um, and we essentially, what it is, is that we are wrapping a one functionality into another and expose as a HTTP endpoint. But before doing this HTTP handling, actual handling and giving you a response, you are executing one middleware for you know validation, one middleware for authorization, until you until the last middleware is actually executing the proper handler code, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so maybe we can start with some examples. Like, can you give me like I don't know three, four examples of uh, a middle I'm starting to build a service right now. What are the three middlewares that I must have? Oh, yeah, totally. So I was kind of like creating example of uh, gRPC middlewares uh, in this project, right? Uh, I was mentioning and, you know, something that I um, we rec- I would recommend, I would do that in my in my service is, you know, first of all, panic recovery, because imagine that gRPC handlers doesn't care about panics. Like, I mean, they care, there's a panic. Uh, and sometimes in handling code, it's very, you know, easy to make uh, maybe some 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 mistakes uh, and panic can occur you don't want to kill the whole service you want to kill only the request um, and and error out like a normal internal error error not like uh, panicking the whole stack so 
you know, the recovery middleware is one of the middlewares we have, and I would recommend that. Mm. And there's one caveat with that, by the way, how to use it. It's not easy, <laughs> but we'll discuss about the disadvantages. Uh, metric, right? So we don't want to increment metrics manually usually. You want to have this um, semi-auto-instrumentation, I call it. Yep. Like, it's not super auto-instrumentation because you have to still provide this middleware, but you kind of import it, and, and that's done. So it is automatic a little bit. So what, what kind of metrics do you actually get from middlewares, right? These I are mean, standard metrics across whatever you, everything. Yeah, whatever you implement, but uh, for, for gRPC middlewares, and we have the same for HTTP in Prometheus Hold is, you know, just um, how many uh, requests you have currently yep. in yep. Uh, in progress, for example, uh, or how many started and how many finished, so we can kind of gather how many requests you have right now. Uh, this kind of takes, uh, tells you the saturation of the service, like how mm -hmm. many, you know, for example, how many requests you have currently. You have histograms about uh, latency, that's very yep. important. You have errors, so what response statuses were. were. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and this is built into a few metrics, so you have three probably. You have started, you have finished, and you have histogram for latency, so literally three metrics, and that covers you um, through the red method, let's call it, right? <laughs> so request errors and duration, uh, which is very popular in SRE to, to make sure that, to, to know that the, uh, your service is reliable. So, so that's kind of like very much something that everybody should have. Um, and then, you know, I went further in this example and to provide full observability. So we have a logging middleware, mm -hmm. which logs every time request comes, which is super spammy, but maybe for the back um, piece, maybe temporarily you can enable that and have all the all the logs, uh, all yep. the requests logs. Maybe you only want to log errors. So that's also configurable in this middleware. And uh, and phrasing, right? And why it's super important to, to talk about those in free together is because this allows correlations mm -hmm. because you have the same context in all those three things. Uh, so tracing generates a trace or span and and um, and what's special about our middlewares at least is that they kind of communicate with each other in some way yep. in the sense that there is a state the only state we need actually is a trace ID or request ID. So identification for this request. So we can add exemplar to metrics, we can add a log field to logging, and then trace has its own, span has its own trace ID. So then in your solution, in your backend, in observability solution, you can kind of query this trace ID and it shows you metrics, logs, and traces. So this is extremely, extremely relevant these days. Uh, piece of technology, right? The middleware. Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. Uh, I think uh, anything, all, anything I missed, what, what, what would uh, you add? No, I think all of these are uh, great examples. And I, I think maybe one that is uh, also a must in most applications is uh, the authentication middleware, right? Authorization can be different, maybe in different endpoints, so you, you're potentially doing different things, but auto authentication is usually the same across your, your service, like you're checking a JW which is uh, kind of signed by the correct person. Uh, you're making sure that a bearer, the, the basic code is present or bearer token is present, right? So usually some kind of authentication middleware uh, right. is quite popular. And actually, funny story, uh, uh, authentication middleware is the first middleware that I ever saw. It was like uh -huh. when I was um, doing a hackathon when I was in uni, uh, we were playing around with like some, uh, I think it was like an Express JS server or something. Mm -hmm. And obviously we're just looking at Stack Overflow and copy-pasting uh, because you have only like uh, 24 hours to come up with some solution. And for authentication, we had this like some kind of abstraction there that, uh, yeah, seem, seems interesting. Um, but yeah, uh, later I found out that this was uh, actually called a middleware. So yeah. Exactly. Hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, what's special about putting ALF in middleware is that you kind of want to make sure that all the endpoints or almost mm. all the endpoints are secure. So imagine you are doing this manually in every handler, right? So you're coding this ifs that, you know, first of all, you can make mistakes in every of those, yep. even if you copy correctly. But if you forget to add in one, one endpoint, it's unsecure. So having middleware that you know is applied to everything is kind of like, uh, I guess, more secure in some way. Uh, yeah, so, so you're right, the ALF is also nice. Um, yeah, the validation, uh, there are automatic protobuf um, fields, and there is some magic that you can do with protobuf to, to kind of automatically tell in protobuf specification of the message how it should be validated and then when. So that's kind of handled by this library. Um, 
Yeah, that's about you know the most useful stuff, but people have a lot of other custom things. Okay, but this is middleware. Uh, what is the triggerware? Yeah, yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, I have to um, admit that like uh, when I first saw the triggerware kind of terminology, it seems like super weird. Uh, it didn't make sense <laughs> to me. Uh, but it's actually quite straightforward. It's like a middleware, but for your client, right? Yeah. So it, yeah, it allows you to kind of modify behavior on kind of each request that you're making. You know, in a, in a server world, you do stuff before request comes, or you can do after the response is um, kind of sent to the user. But the same thing is the client side. On the client side, you made the request, but before making the request, request maybe you want to inject certain authorization. Maybe you want to also add metric, increment metric, and you know, do tracing and do logs. So all these similar things. Uh, in fact, like I remember the first time I was playing heavily with triplewares is when I was doing client load balancing, right? Mm-hmm. I think even in HDB. Uh, so client load balancing is when you kind of start connections to different backends on the client side, and then you run Robin or, or have a different logic for shipping the, um, the request to, to equally, for example, distribute the request from one client. It's very popular in gRPC, but I think it's open source as well. Um, and um, that was so buggy, like it's so very complex in a sense. So uh, getting this done properly was was difficult. So I remember doing it a lot. Um, and the tripper, by the way, it's from the run trip naming. Yeah. Um, probably not only in GoLang, it's in networking generally, but this is you know when you do run trip, so kind of like a client side side of the call. Yep, yep, yep. Um... We are talking about Go, we are talking about gRPC, but uh, these concepts uh, go across languages, right? Uh, you can have middlewares in Java, you can have middlewares in JavaScript, and uh, pretty much any language that uh, allows you to have some kind of uh, you know, um, server and client will have some abstractions that uh, that cover totally. these concepts. There's worth to mention that, again, as I mentioned, the middleware has many definitions, and this is our you know, with what we used to work with in our experience uh, with um, just, you know, chains of wrapped functionality. But there are other, uh, you know, um, forms of middleware. I, I, you know, I tweeted about that and, you know, some responses were from, from people who had services, like full-blown service, who was participating, like, I would say proxy, right? Like proxying um, the, the the request and doing certain to those requests before um, hitting the backend, right? So it's like another binary, another process. Um, maybe, you know, we can think about that as a service mesh, as a proxy. Some people call it middleware as well, right? So, and that's fine. Um, so, and also we had, you know, a team or organization at Red Hat called Middleware. So that's also where, you know, maybe glue code was happening. Like, I, I, yeah, so, so that was that was crazy uh, as well. Like, I didn't know what they do essentially because it's got like a big utils, like big, big glue, um, uh, glue projects, but it's very important, right? So uh, that also could be called Middlewares. Okay, but there is one thing that I mentioned in the beginning, like our Middlewares, Okay, we talked they are useful, um, but is there alternative to that? Like, what if you don't use middleware? Um, and, and maybe why people don't speak about middlewares that much nowadays? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a very good question. Uh, I think with the evolution of like infrastructure in general, you're getting a, a lot more options across the board for doing this kind of uh, repetitive things or a lot of more options for doing observability, maybe even outside of your service, right? Or authentication outside of your service. Uh, so you mentioned already uh, service meshes, but uh, you get also things like EBPF or uh, in general proxies that uh, help you mm-hmm. do all of these kind of things uh, before the request even reaches your service. So even do which you, is your process, right? Exactly, exactly. Do, do you think this is one of the reasons why maybe middlewares are less talked about nowadays? Yeah, I think that's the main reason is um, we want to improve life of the developer, right? Make sure they have less work, I would say, <laughs> so they can focus on actual work, mm-hmm. whatever this is. And uh, that means moving this functionality to 
out of the process, which means, for example, they can be coded by one team and not in every different languages. Uh, so service mesh is, I think, first generation of that. Like I think there was very much hype of service mesh where every service, every process has its own sidecar that does authorization and logging and tracing and metrics. So exactly those things we mentioned uh, that we code in the process, but now it moves into a different box. That turned out to be very complex and kind of expensive, but some people still run it. I, I personally uh, played with service mesh for some services, but not for entire cluster. And I'm happy I didn't need to. <laughs> How's your experience, even? Yeah, I, I have used uh, service mesh uh, like Istio uh, or yes, uh, Linkerd yes, uh, or Istio mainly. Many Istio others. mainly mm-hmm. uh, console a little bit, uh, but mm-hmm. yeah, uh, I think they can be very powerful, but uh, they do require some expertise to run correctly, right? And uh, and, and it, that's what's the big difference, right? For example, imagine if you have a simple, whatever, let's say Java application deployed somewhere. And uh, if you want to modify something about the authorization layer, you're free to do it inside the code and you're expert in Java and it's easy to do. But when all of this uh, context is moved to a, a service a mesh layer, then it becomes a little bit more different. And you have to consider a lot of other scenarios like uh, the, basically the scope for failure increases, a lot more things can fail, and uh, this basically increases the uh, time to debug. It uh, requires uh, more kind of expertise to effectively operate this kind of platform. But mm-hmm. obviously, it, it, it comes with a lot of benefits. Like you, you can abstract away a lot of things. Mm. And uh, Yeah, there are counter arguments to that, what you said, like definitely, when you are changing this, you are moving the whole infrastructure because you are essentially releasing a new version of the service mesh to accomplish this, which can break everywhere. Um, but in some way, it's good that you know what you are changing is consistent with other so uh, other services because there is huge dependency hell, and not in terms of imports, but in terms mm. of hey, my authorization has to change in one service, and then other service that talks to it should they upgrade as well, and then you know what if the upgrade order is different, what do you have to have, we have to revert, so it gets really complex very fast. Uh, but yeah, definitely there are many 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 other options. Um, and however, service mesh is also old nowadays. It's not hyped anymore <laughs> because there are new things coming, which is uh, or like new new thing came, which is ABPF. So this is this idea of like we still have middlewares outside of the process. We don't even install another sidecar, another process that handles those middlewares. We put them into Linux kernel in our nodes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I I think. Like that's amazing and it's so powerful. But I think uh, the it can go hand in hand with service mesh, right? Because even if you have um, some kind of uh, EPF uh, process running, they will require some kind of uh, centralized management, right? And uh, this is where you get the same concepts that you get from uh, service meshes. You have like your control plane, and then you have your data plane. And whether the data plane is EPF based or uh, sidecar based, uh, yeah, that, that doesn't matter. Yeah. But yeah, but let's talk about data plane, right? Um, I think the middleware is, is kind of data plane and, yep. and, and kind of coordination is another topic for another show. <laughs> but, uh, but, but you're right, like, uh, of course, those solutions can live together. Uh, so you can have portion of things in service mesh, portion of things of eBPF. Um, but, the, but the true challenge is that uh, it's just much more complex to code anything in the BPF. Mm-hmm. And one thing is different language is C and you have like limited memory and it's super, super difficult to maintain. Uh, but second is that, you know, the Linux version changes so much and this kind of layer of eBPF is still not that stable. So you have to be very careful of like Linux versions. You have to be yep. Linux kernel developer at the end. And uh, and then imagine you want to change this authorization a little bit. Like now you have much even, you know, more uh, pain to, to update it uh, because it can be security issue. It can be, you know, slow. It can like... You know, it kind of is safer than just maybe kernel function, but still it can, you know, yeah, failure mode is big there. So 
that's why but it's hype because like once you do it maybe it solves a lot of problems because again you don't need to code it in different languages um but let's see i'm pretty sure this will rotate like every other hype it will cycle and probably it will cycle through all the three so hey we had middlewares in the code very popular then we get back to oh, like get move forward to service match then we move forward to ebpf i think we'll go back to middlewares very very soon um and that's why i'm preparing v2 so every so we are ready <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. There, there are benefits to uh, all of these, and uh, I think uh, all of them solve similar problem. Maybe they solve it in slightly different ways, but uh, the problem, like the big thing, is that the problem will always be there. Right? We'll always yeah. have this kind of repeated functionality that we need to take care of, uh, yeah. and how we do it, yeah, yeah. it's up to us. Yeah, but the benefit of having this in code, so the, the, the how we started discussing middleware so far, is that you have like application context right like you have all the data in memory you need uh, about requests about how we solve it and we are essentially closer to to the code uh, so generally it's easier to to maybe customize that customize it and by the way like it's definitely easier if you have one language stack like we have been i think we worked together even uh at, at the startup in uk and you know it has most of the services were in in go so we had the power of kind of service yep. mesh because we just update one library and every, roll out everything and then we have upgraded things. So if we have one language, maybe you don't need to push to those um, more complex solutions like service mesh and GBPF. Um, but yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, no, it's interesting. It's, it's interesting. Uh, let's uh, go back to uh, middlewares. I, I think it's interesting to see where do you draw the line of what you consider useful as a middleware and w what you consider too much. Like, for example, you would say that authentication, it can live in middlewares, like logging, tracing, metrics, all fine to live in a middleware. Do you think it's fine to, let's say, validate uh, a request? So let's say I'm creating a user. Should I validate in a middleware that the user has uh, its name populated or it's empty? Is this something that can live in a middleware or that's too specific? Oh man, yeah, it's 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 on the edge, right? Some things are on the edge. Like uh, sometimes it feels too brittle. Or for example, you have one hundred or like one thousand handlers, and you need to validate this one field only for one endpoint, and you create a middleware for that. <clears throat> so, so you can really do 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 overdo this, right? Mm -hmm. um, and also, what I don't like about some middlewares, like in, in the same fashion, is <clears throat> this payload logger. I think I was kind of like, I, I would not recommend using this, but people love that. Mm. So this prints every message. Like they want to have this printed into logs. And I was like, what if you have like upload? What if you have like, I don't know, like requests of moderate size? It's just unreadable in the log line and gives huge, you know, waste of everything. Yeah, and what if you have uh, sensitive data? <laughs> so yeah, there's so many problems. So uh, we have validation middleware. I... It's too magic to me a little bit, but if you have a lot of repeated validation where um, you always you put certain things to requests or headers that you have to validate for majority yep. of your handlers, why not? It's a majority <laughs> of thing. If the boilerplate, it's is the same as when would you put something to the function instead of inlining this. Yeah. So yeah. it has to be, yeah, it has to be thought through on a, on a yeah case basis. And I guess the problem here is that um, even though middlewares can be and are super useful, they come with some kind of uh, cognitive cost, right? Uh, tracing uh, through all of your middlewares uh, what exactly happens until it reaches your service can be can be um, difficult sometimes. Like, do you have some other examples of uh, uh, how you can shoot yourself in the foot with middlewares? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. We had, uh, yeah, a lot of fun um, doing those at some point, like essentially implementing middlewares and maintaining open source, but also like using them in production. And uh, you can be, yeah, sometimes surprised with uh, with the problems. So, so first thing you mentioned is that you, we are wrapping things um, over, right? So we have one middleware that invokes another middleware that invokes another, 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 and then the last one invokes handler. And it's sometimes for humans, it's sometimes hard to even like, you know, yeah. when you are doing this chain, like what is the order of this chain? Like what is first called? And then even implementing this middleware is weird sometimes because you essentially have 
um, you know, you have argument of the handler and then you have to kind of invoke this handler and just just kind of like meta, right? It feels like very meta, very much meta. One thing that I, one thing that, um, you know, makes things difficult is this kind of like um, some edge cases where the order matters, but, and there are so many, unfortunately. For example, for example, like in this um, situation where I mentioned the correlation of observability, right? So where we have trace ID or request ID that is that should be consistent with all the layers. You know, what is creating trace ID? Tracing uh, middleware. So we should probably put them in first when the request <laughs> comes. But what yep. it means first also? Like first, I mean, you know, when the f request comes, this is one of the first middlewares to, 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 to get into. Then you have to make sure that another middleware uh, maybe metrics and logging are there, so the trace ID is already present, right? So, so those things are tricky. Another example is this recovery, panic recovery. So imagine mm -hmm. you want to recover from panic. It's Eva, kind of specific would, to would, Go, yeah. but... Uh, no, quick, why? I mean, yeah. The, or the I guess exception, pa pa exception handling. Like, for example, right? right? Like exception, <laughs> okay, yeah. exactly. So yeah. imagine you have um, something that recovers from the exception, uh, and let's say your handle doesn't recover if it happens mm -hmm. accidentally. And um, so where would you put this recovery? Middleware <laughs> in the beginning? Uh, or uh, so as uh, the okay. closer to the handler or first? Yeah. Uh, I'm kind of cheating now because uh, before this talk, <laughs> I actually looked it up because uh, it's always so confusing to me. Okay, but even if you looked, there is no single answer. So tell me mm, what, what would you prefer? I, I think uh, it. Okay, it actually uh, makes sense to put it uh, uh, last, right? And and you want to put it last for the single reason that uh, if the you're expecting the panic to occur in your handler, right? Uh, if your panic occurs in uh, any of the other middlewares, then Okay, that's a problem. But if it yeah. occurs in your handler, uh, you want all of the other hand, uh, other middlewares to kind of do something with uh, with this payload. So, if your middleware is uh, the if your recovered middleware is the last one, it will immediately re recover from the panic, and all the other middlewares will be able to do things like, for example, log or uh, exactly. increase and I can mention, hey, panic occurred or like exactly. error occurred. Exactly. Yeah. But then the counter argument is that when monitoring or like your custom interceptor, okay, this is what I wanted to mention is that there's another word for middleware in GRPC, interceptor. So, you know, there are various names for the same thing. But this middleware, custom middleware, imagine, you know, you know, you wrote, for example, and not imported from some other, like there's also chances there are panics there. So that <laughs> would be essentially <laughs> killing the request. So I have idea, put recovery middleware in the beginning and the end. Yeah, yeah, that sounds good to me. <laughs> too much. <laughs> and maybe put it yeah, in the so put it in the middle as well. Why not? The more, the better. <laughs> <laughs> I like your uh, yeah, exactly. Wrap all the middlewares with extra middleware of recovery. <laughs> no, but it's actually this is the discussions and the problems you you have when dealing with middlewares. It's not always pretty. Sometimes you have those weird um, discussions, and and that's fine. And I like your answer. I think I I, I agree with you. But it can get really really weird if you have this meta kind of middlewares and some middle can have its own middlewares. For one of the weirdest middleware I was writing like yesterday, I think, to, for this V2 is the selector. Mm -hmm. What does it do? Yeah, it's like a conditional. So maybe you want to specify all your middlewares in one place for mm -hmm. all your endpoints, but then you want to have authorization middleware for everything, but not for a metric endpoint, for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you have a middleware that only applies a middleware if certain method is uh, requested okay. <laughs> and, and then you can you can you can go even further because you can actually maybe block an allow list and deny list and you can uh, you can do or you can do like totally trees of things so so <laughs> okay our recommendation here is to keep it simple like keep it in one chain of middlewares that is visible in your main function main whatever in whatever mm -hmm. language you're using so this is the purpose it's explicit clear what global functionalities you have for your uh, handlers and, and triperwares, uh, like middleware and triperwares, right? Yeah, but, but so what, what is your, what, what's your advice for exactly this use case? Like uh, applying a middleware 
only on certain endpoints, right? Because I think a lot of people will have this exam uh, will have this uh, problem. Yeah, that, that's exactly what we discuss with validation, right? If like take the majority rule, right? Like if majority of endpoints needs this, put this in the middleware and and exclude certain middleware, mm-hmm. or certain mm-hmm. handlers, sorry, center certain requests or something. But if you start to do this for you need this for free handlers out of thousand, then probably just add you know, just function invocation in the, in the handler. Um, so it, it's just like everything else. Like you have to, you've proven that, that this is actually um, helpful for, for readability and, yep. and re- reusability. Uh, but our our title of this episode is Cognitive Cloud. So at the end, what we are, what we are doing, uh, I think it's essentially hiding complexity, right? Mm-hmm. Cognitive load is when you are, I mean, we're optimizing essentially readability and yep. how fast you can read and understand the code, what is happening when you have an issue when you're debugging. And middleware can improve cognitive load unless you make them too complex to, to follow, right? Um, so, so you have to find a balance. Yeah, I think the important thing here is that you can't really eliminate cognitive load. You're just moving it from one place to another. And the important part here is to move it from the place that you see most often to the place that you don't touch, right? Yeah. You most likely, your business logic will change. You need to modify your handlers. You need to add new features, but you always have the same way of uh, managing metrics, of managing logs. Let's hide this complexity somewhere so developers can just work on the business logic uh, without having to think about uh, all, all of this complexity. Exactly, exactly. Uh, what what other issues with middleware? Maybe just to finish, um, efficiency, of course, right? Like we've seen memory leaks in um, in one <laughs> middleware, and you know, apply to every every handler. So it just you know exponentially um, hits uh, hits us. So that's kind of important to make them you know not too slow yep. um, or, or not too expensive. And definitely, uh, it's also important when you're writing your own middlewares, right? Uh, be especially conscious about performance. And I have like one example, uh, when I was working on um, one project, uh, I was writing uh, like a custom authentication middleware. And for whatever reason, uh, the service had to handle both uh, uh, JWT-based authentication and just basic code, right? And I was just writing without thinking much. So I put the check for JWT uh, authentication first and then the basic code check, right? But this will do the job, but imagine if you have like millions of requests. Uh, checking the validity of a JWT token is expensive. It can take a lot of CPU. Uh, I don't know if you remember in the company that we work together, I think we're spending, I don't know, like... Oh, that's 10, your 30. incident. Ah, now I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, you, you can literally spend like 30, 40% of your uh, CPU time just uh, ch- doing crypto work uh, on your JWT. So yeah, it's important. Uh, and if, let's say, the... the um, basic code uh, check happens often, why not put it first, right? Uh, save yourself the time of uh, actually doing JWT validation. Cool. Uh, an- another uh, interesting point uh, here is uh, like, how do you test your service if you have a bunch of middlewares, right? Does it change anything for you, like when you're writing tests for your service? Or uh, do you prefer like maybe you should have uh, like unit test approach, just test, t- test uh, your business logic, just test uh, maybe your handler, your uh, middleware separately. Like, what's your approach here? Ivan, do do we even test things here? Like, (laughs) we just don't. We test in production, right? (laughs) With middleware and without, we just don't test. No, uh, joking aside, definitely important question. Um, And it's really about this um, this level of testing that we know, right? So unit level, integration level, end-to-end level. On the unit level, when you kind of like create some handler, you probably want to unit test the handler alone uh, because another unit test probably handles alone middlewares. Uh, however, you know, you might, those alone pieces of functionalities, middlewares and handlers might work on the separation, but when you integrate them, there might be weird behavior. Like for example, like the recovery is not recovering what they should or yeah. The trace ID is not propagating properly. So, you know, generally in middleware state, passing state between things are super difficult usually because they're hi- hidden by context or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so testing this is very important, but then you do that in the integration or end-to-end level where you maybe spin up the whole application with all middlewares um, to perform some, some basic tests. So, yeah, I think there is nothing special there, honestly. 
Yeah, yeah. And just uh, uh, trying to expand a little bit here, uh, you said that communication between middlewares can be difficult. Like, what is the usual way that uh, middlewares communicate with each other? Is it like setting headers? Is it like some kind of uh, programming uh, language uh, concepts? Or how do they communicate between each other? I mean, it depends, right? But uh, the, the, the trouble, I think, comes, the challenge comes from the fact that whatever we are wrapping Mm -hmm. with or whatever we're wrapping or adding middlewares to usually it's not designed for wrapping for <laughs> kind of like passing additional stuff not related mm -hmm. to this logic right uh, so so like imagine you have proxy or like middleware on the mm -hmm. process level you 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 talk to the you know get you you um, request some get endpoint on HTTP. Um, so you pr prepare some requests, and this request is for handler. It's not for middleware. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And imagine you have multiple proxies. How do they pass information to each other without maybe adding something to the request that handler were, will will be confused? Like, is it from client? Is it from something in between? Um, so we can't modify things easily. There are interfaces that we have to comply with. And especially with in, in process, this is exactly the same problem. Like in Golang, we have this uh, serve HTTP function with mm -hmm. request and uh, write response or mm -hmm. response writer. Uh, for Tripper, where we have whatever run trip with context, request, and response. So there is little... Uh, opportunity for us to, to sneakily add um, maybe some state yep. uh, attached to requests because of course we can have a global memory we can have a you know database to kind of like store state there but it's too happening too fast we need to store that in memory so mm -hmm. extending extending this interface and having for example serve HTTP request response writer and middleware context it's not an option so we have to cheat a little bit and in Golang we cheat using context mm -hmm. fortunately we have opportunity to cheat everybody <laughs> hates it but there's no other solution you have context which usually is for that time and deadlines and and timeouts and cancellations of of, of request of anything uh, but you also uh, can pass arbitrary data and sometimes people pass a huge chunk of data don't do that but small piece of information like for example hey this request is authorized or this is the token that i got from authorization or uh, <clears throat> this is the rate limit i applied or this is the trace id those kind of information are cool to store in the context um, and 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 then anything either middleware or handler can access it but you have to, yeah, because we are cheating, because it's prone to, it's not really, typically it's not typed, it's kind of like dynamically casted. So things can go wrong in many levels. That's why it's difficult. I think that's yeah. kind of the main reason. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, I think uh, what you're saying uh, makes sense. Uh, and I quite like uh, the fact that you have some ability to pass uh, mm. some kind of metadata bet between middleware. Right? And it's, Super important. Uh, and and uh, by the way, on the middle, uh, just just to mention on the, for example, proxying level, we usually use HTTP requests. In gRPC, we use metadata, mm -hmm. right? Uh, sorry, uh, what I said. I don't know what I said. <laughs> uh, did I say? I wanted to say that on HTTP level, we use headers, right? Request yes. headers for that, yep. and for the gRPC metadata. So um, different different things needs different stuff, and it's more or less cheating. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I would even say between middlewares. Especially in Go, in the context, I like putting the logger as well. <laughs> this can be controversial, but uh, it, it yeah, is like super sense. important to have uh, yeah. all of the structured data there uh, when you're log with which in your handlers. But yeah, uh, it's uh, super interesting. Right now, we have been talking about uh, kind of request response uh, protocols like uh, um, HTTP. Maybe you're making some uh, um, gets, uh, posts, uh, and so on and so forth. What about uh, kind of streaming data, right? Because uh, especially oh, like yeah. in gRPC, one of the big use cases is uh, streaming. So I'm making like one request and I get like uh, a lot of data continuously. Um, how, how does this work with middlewares? Yeah, that's, that's a challenge. Um, and super, it's much easier in um, in the places where streaming is not that popular, like <clears throat> REST, for example, like by default, Streaming is weird because the, the state to that, um, although you can do HTTP streaming. 
Uh, in gRPC, it's very, very common. You have client streaming, you have server streaming, and BD directions, so kind of bidirectional mm -hmm. uh, streaming. And um, how we did it in, in the middleware is that you have, you know, um, kind of callouts for certain things that happen. So, for example, yep. you can have a callout for requests that started to be to begin, right? Mm -hmm. um, then you have general finish of the of the whole thing of the stream and then you have particular messages right so we have to kind of middleware should sometimes skip but sometimes implement certain functionality on each request mm -hmm. so for example authorization should start in the beginning of the stream there is no need to authorize each individual uh, small request which is streamed yep. into server for example that would be weird but maybe some kind of application model would 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 do that um, but maybe you want to um, check histogram for latencies of that because maybe one message one particular message which is streamed to the uh, client back like a, a response uh, is super slow but maybe majority of other messages are super fast and you want to maybe clarify which one was that and maybe you want to put span on those so uh, especially for long living streams when you are streaming for, you know 24 hours I mean this is something that you have to do so you just have more work to do on streaming and having middleware that works for non-streaming and streaming is also weird um, but it's doable, it's just more work, yeah. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Well, thanks Bartek, it was uh, great talking about uh, yeah, with think you. We exhausted the topic, but you know, we will uh, definitely share some form for uh, feedback and questions if you want to learn more about anything we said today. Um, and yeah, we would like to uh, continue with um, more episodes. Um, this was very, very, you know, uh, hands down, let's say technical um, coding stuff, but we will definitely, we have some plan for, um, you know, different episodes where we talk more about soft skills, uh, maybe SRE, maybe architecture. Um, we will invite some guests. So we have a lot of things planned for, uh, for you. So stay tuned. Yeah, definitely. And if you have any ideas, anything you want to hear uh, us talk about, uh, feel free to reach out. But yeah, it was great. See you next time. Yeah, thank you. Have a nice week. <laughs>